And he just said, oh, shut up, Brian. And he called out the back room of his little surf shop and all these little 12-year-old grommets come running out. And he goes, what do you guys think of Uggs? And every one of them just went, oh, man, those Uggs are so fake. Have you seen those models in the ads? They can't surf. I instantly knew that all the ads I'd been running were so fake. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. Hey, this is Mark Gutman, and you are listening to the Baby Got Backstory podcast. And before we get going with today's episode, I just want to let you know that probably more than anything right now, I love doing this show. And I do it for no other reason than I find these guests so interesting, and I also want to deliver value to you, the listeners. If there's one way that you can help Just one way, and this is going to cost you nothing, no dollars, no money. It would just be to download, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on iTunes. Better yet, good friends share the Baby Got Backstory podcast with their friends. The more listeners we have, the more reviews we have, we go higher up in the rankings, and that helps the show tremendously. So that's it. If you can help in that way, it would be greatly appreciated. Now, on to today's show. So what do Goosebumps, Surfing, Pink Floyd, and Sheep all have to do with building a billion-dollar brand? Well, in the case of Ugg Boots, just about everything. Yeah, yeah, Ugg Boots are those Ugg Boots. The sheepskin boots we see on every woman from age 8 to 80, wearing once the weather turns a little chilly. They have become ubiquitous, not only here in the States, but all over the globe. We see them at the beach, the mountain, the city, the hockey rink. Wherever there are chilly feet, man, woman, girl, boy, you'll find the fashionable and functional Ugg boots and shoes on people's feet. But it wasn't always that way. Our story starts back in 1979, when there were no sheepskin boots on anyone's feet in the U.S., except for maybe a few kooky Australian surfers who could only source boots in Australia. The year is 1979, and Jimmy Carter was president of the United States. The average cost of a new house was $58,000. Average income per year was $17,500, and a gallon of gas cost 86 cents. Michael Jackson has just released his breakthrough album, Off the Wall, and ESPN launches on cable television. People are watching All My Children and MASH on the TV, and Superman, the Christopher Reeve version, and Clint Eastwood's movie, Every Which Way But Loose, and Security Weaver's Alien were all tops at the box office that year. And Sony had just introduced a revolutionary new technological advancement called the Walkman, which cost $200. And the first snowboard was invented by Daniel Chadwick. Things were definitely different than they are today. And so what I love about today's guest is that he is just a hair past 70 years old. He still surfs, snowboards, and plays golf. He has a youthful spirit with infinite wisdom, and he is also the founder of Ugg Boots. And Brian Smith came here from Australia with a dream and ended up building a billion-dollar brand. But it wasn't an overnight success. He actually built a brand over the course of many years, and I find his story to be so fascinating. Also note how Brian's success is a combination of philosophy, mysticism, business acumen, and emotion. 
It takes all these things, not just one, to build a brand. And before we get to Brian's story, I do want to acknowledge the audio you're about to hear, and it isn't that great. We had some technical difficulties with Brian's audio, and I wrestled with the decision to re-record or leave it as is. I ultimately chose to leave it, hoping that the listener would be able to understand and look past this because the story, the message, and the content is compelling and worth hearing even with some audio issues. Brian Smith has been able to take what he loved, surfing, and mix it with a business that made him money and served his lifestyle, the holy grail of what we are all after. And this is his story. So Brian, we're here to talk about your life and story and your story as the founder of the celebrated brand Uggs and and as an entrepreneur and your evolution to today. So I want to go back to the beginning. Were you always into footwear as a kid? Tell me about that. (laughs) I was just into surfing and sports uh, as a kid. I never thought that I would be an entrepreneur. You know, I really didn't have any plans for the future. It was amazing. And you grew up in Australia, is that correct? Yeah, I grew up on the east coast of Australia. Had a dual upbringing. I was, you know, we had a house at the coast for about 100 miles away. So I grew up with a sort of a country surfing attitude and also lived in Canberra, which was the capital down there. And so I had a sort of a city upbringing as well for school. So it was a really, really good childhood. It had the best of both worlds. I know at some point you came over to the U.S. What was that progression like? One thing that I had when I was a kid that sort of led to why I became what I did is that I had this tenacity to, to never give up on things. But that led me, in, in my mid-20s, I, I was determined to play class rugby and I ended up playing against England and against the New Zealand All Blacks for Western Australia. And I was determined to be a really good sailor. And so I ended up sailing in the national, uh, it was sort of like Hobie Cat champions. I wasn't ever the best. I never wanted to be the best because to be the best, you have to give it that last 10 or 15% and drop everything else. And I was never interested in dropping everything else. I, I was really good at lots of things, but not the best at any. And I always was able to sort of play in the top levels, though, just because I was so into not giving up. And, you know, when I came to America, I was actually looking for a business to take back to Australia because I'd graduated as a chartered accountant. It took me 10 years. And there's another example of tenacity where I I never liked it, but I just refused to give up. And after 10 years, I quit the day I graduated because (laughs) I'd sort of done it. And that's when I started thinking, okay, well, what the hell am I going to do with my life? Because I I hated being an accountant. You know, I, I was starting to meditate a lot at the time because I just found yoga back then. And I thought, well, what, what can I do with my life? And it suddenly hit me, you know, oh my God, all the coolest brands and products are coming out of California, like Levi jeans and waterbeds and all the surf brands and skate brands. And I thought, I'm going to go to California. I'm going to find the next big thing and I'm going to bring it back to Australia and make my fortune. That's literally how I got to America, you know, not knowing that I would ever see uh, sheepskin boots in my future, but it was just that desire to get out and find something better. And then I just, I I just was fanatical about doing that. 
Brian, do you remember the day that you thought of that? Do you remember where you were? Or do you remember? Yeah, I have an absolute vivid recall of that. I was in the living room of my little house. Believe it or not, I just pulled the wrapping off a brand new album, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. I was listening to the words of the second song. It was, you know, tired of lying in the sunshine, staying home to watch the rain. You are young and life is long and there is time to kill today. I went, oh, my God, he's talking to me. And then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. And when I heard those words, I just got goosebumps and thought, oh, shit. I've been running on the spot for 10 years and I, all my friends were tracking off to, you know, partnerships in accounting or, you know, they had businesses and, and I'd been running on the spot. And that's what really motivated me to get up and do something. And, and it was right then after that that I, I started that meditation and figured out that, you know, California was the place to be to find the next big thing. Pink Floyd, it always motivates you. It always, always creates the, the impetus to move across the country. <laughs> but, it's amazing how, yeah, how many people must have been motivated by the words in songs, you know? It's, it's a very powerful medium. No, extremely. Yeah, so I, I landed in Santa Monica and, and I surfed Malibu nearly every day because that had always been one of my big dreams. You know, I didn't find the next big thing. And then a couple more months and I made tons of friends up at Malibu, but, but still hadn't found the next big thing until it was like October and the, the wind was getting cooler and the water was chilling off. And I'd brought my sheepskin boots from Australia. And, and after surfing at Malibu one day, I was pulling my boots on and I went, oh, my God, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And I got this massive dose of goosebumps again. And my buddy Doug and I were, you know, I said, hey, man, we've got to go into business. You know, there's no boots in America. And one in two Australians own some sort of sheepskin footwear. We're going to be instant millionaires. <laughs> and that's typical of every entrepreneur when they get their big aha, you know. So anyway, we went back to my house and we called up the, you know, a factory in Australia. We, we'd done a little bit of research. And we got to be the distributors for this little factory. And he sent six pairs of boots over. Doug was going to be the salesman. So he went onto this road and, and came back a week later with, you know, like 150 business cards from every shoe retailer and no orders. And he said, Brian, they, they tell me we're crazy trying to sell sheepskin here in California. You know, I knew that wasn't right because Australia's climate's just the same as uh, California. But, you know, as good entrepreneurs, we had to sort of pivot and figure out, you know, you, when, you, when you hit the wall, you've got to figure out how to get around it or over it. And we thought, well, how come all my buddies up at Malibu think that Uggs is the best idea? And it struck me that so many of them have been down to Australia on their surf trips and brought boots back with them. So within the surf community, it was pretty well known. So Doug and I switched gears and then we went after the surf shops. And we, you know, we still had these visions of selling millions of dollars worth of boots. And every store we went into and showed the samples, they went, oh, fantastic, man. Yeah, they're great. Yeah, my friends have got them. I got a pair, you know. And, and so after that one little road trip, we thought we were like, you know, on the way to being instantly rich. That spurred us to raise a little bit of money, about 20 grand. And we sent 15,000 down to Australia and bought 500 pairs of boots in. And they arrived around about, Gosh, the end of November, it took us a couple of days to organize all the products and get the brochures and the price lists and every order pads ready. And we went back out on the road and everywhere I went that said they were fantastic, 
you know, I'd, I'd go back and say, well, okay, well, how many do you want? And they'd go, the owner would go, oh, my God, you know, we couldn't sell them out of our store. We, we just sell surfboards and trucks and bikinis and flip-flops and, you know, you, you have to go to the shoe stores. And this happened over and over and over again. And the first year's sales, Mark, of UGG were 28 pairs. And, you know, we'd bought 500 pairs just, just thinking that that wouldn't be enough. And 28 pairs. And it just turned out to be exactly $1,000. But as disappointing as that was, the thing that I got out of that, and, and it took many years to figure it out, but I, I finally realized that there's not a company on the New York Times stock exchange page that did not start out with $1,000. If you start a new business, you have to go through this beginning stage. And, and I used that when I, I wrote a book recently called The Birth of a Brand. I'm, I'm getting ready to reissue it uh, really, really soon uh, as an audio version. And the theme of the book is that you can't give birth to adults. Every new business has to be conceived and then some action taken, which is the birth, right? So the birth of UGG for me was, you know, ordering those six pairs of samples. And then Every business goes into this horrible infancy and it lies there and it lies there and there's no amount of feeding it or, or shaking the crib or urging it. That, you know, that an infant cannot get up and go to college. You just have to persevere through that and unfortunately that's where so many entrepreneurs give up because they don't see any action or, or traction and they just think, oh, this isn't working and they walk away from it. Eventually, if you keep with it, it'll start toddling and the first Customers are buying your product and you're getting articles written about you in magazines and online and stuff. And then that'll quickly turn into use where you've got predictable ordering and sales and marketing's going good, production's good. And that phase, you know, you can be a $20, $30 million business in that phase. But if it's a really, really good product or service like UGG was, it's going to hit the teenage years and, and this is where it's really dangerous because you want to be bigger than you really are. Remember when you want to be at every party in town as a teenager? Well, you, now you want to be at every trade show and every big retailer and, and it's super dangerous because you, you know, outstrip your capital really fast. But eventually it'll mature. You know, the accountants put all the controls in and it becomes a mature company. So that lifestyle is what I, in my book, and it's turned out to be a roadmap for new entrepreneurs and a really good validation for you know, seasoned executives who've been there because they can recognize all of the, the stages that I went through. That's an amazing framework that you've positioned there of, of what the businesses are going through. But I imagine that going back to 28 pairs out of 500 $1,000, it might have been hard to see that, that framework and that roadmap and understanding that each business you can't birth an adult. And so take me back there. You and Doug, you've got 28 pairs sold. I imagine you're not crushing it financially right at this point, right? I mean, you didn't come to uh, the States with a, a boatload of money, you know? So what was your financial situation like then? I owned one little house and I shared, you know, I co-owned another house in, in Perth, Australia before I came. So I borrowed some money on the first house, but that was just living money. And so after that 28 pairs, I had to get a job. I, I think my first job, uh, the first year was washing boats at Marina Del Rey, you know, scrubbing underneath the, a waterline and everything. That was a cool job for the summer. 
and then the next year I thought, okay, well, I'm going to advertise. And uh, I got a model and, you know, a girl and a guy model and put them on the beach with a photographer and posed them up with perfect hair and perfect clothing and perfect boots and perfect sunset. And when I ran those ads the next, you know, that, that winter, sales were like $10,000 and it was horribly disappointing. And in the meantime, I'm up at, you know, Malibu with selling boots out of the back of my van and doing street fairs and swap meets, you know, just any way I possibly could. But that next season was, you know, 10,000 in sales. So I, the next job I got was construction laboring in uh, Bel Air, which was pretty cool because it was a really, really high, high end area of, of Beverly Hills. And it was great to drive in the gate there every day because it just made you feel rich. So it was, it was pretty cool motivator. Even though I was a construction laborer, I, I knew in my head that I was much, much more than that. The next summer, we got better looking models and a more expensive photographer and posed them on the beach looking perfect. And sales went to about $20,000 and I couldn't believe it. You know, it, it should have been way more than that. And so the next season I got a job working on a golf course as a greenskeeper and, you know, fixing up all everything that has to be done with the turf in a, in a golf course. I loved that job and was sort of going to give up the Ugg boots because it was just so hard. It wasn't getting any traction. I remember getting back home in October uh, and the, the first big storm had just hit the coast and the phone's answering machine was just off the charts with 30 different retailers all calling up wanting Ugg boots. So I had to decide, okay, am I going to stick with it or go for it? So I, I decided to go for it again. But this time, instead of running more model ads, I, I called a buddy of mine, uh, met him for a beer. He, he owned South Coast Surf Shop. And, and I said to him, Rob, you know, I don't know what I'm doing wrong here and all this advertising and and he just said, oh, shut up, Brian. And he called out the back room of his little surf shop and all these little 12-year-old grommets come running out. And he goes, what do you guys think of Uggs? Every one of them just went, oh, man, those Uggs are so fake. Have you seen those models in the ads? They can't surf. And, I mean, I instantly knew that when they said that, I, I realized that all the ads I'd been running were so fake. They're totally posed, you know, and, and, and I was kicking myself for it. And... The result of that is I called up a buddy of mine who, who was running a scholastic surf team and I said, Pete, do you have any young kids who are going to turn pro soon? Because I, I don't have a lot of money. But he gave me two young kids, Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And instead of hiring an expensive photographer, I just took my own camera, which had a telephoto lens. And I just we just went surfing down to Trestles uh, in San Onofre there and, and, and Black's Beach in La Jolla. And these are iconic surf walks and they're about a mile long and I knew that any kid reading the magazine, surfer magazine, who saw these ads would die to be in these ads. I ran the ads in October, November, December. Sales went to $240,000 and it was purely because I finally was sending the right image to my target market. And that, that was a huge learning experience for me and it was the beginning of me becoming passionate about marketing and advertising and uh, I looked at that as a craft from then on. But every time that I ran an ad after that, I had to try and get the reader into the ad. I wanted to make it so compelling that the reader would just die to be in the photographs. And I turned out to be pretty successful as that and that's when I really started to take off is when I figured out that marketing component. 
take me back to that moment where you were balancing those two options, quit or not to quit, and what was going on there and why you decided to stick it out. So there were a couple of times when I contemplated quitting. One was on, you know, in the, in the summertime on the golf course, I realized that I had all the worst elements of a business. You know, I had a huge, really costly inventory. And just to be able to have boots for a person who walked in the store who was a size seven, I had sizes five through 12, just in case it was a different size. So it's a huge inventory buildup. It was a new product. Nobody got it. So I couldn't really charge a premium for it. So I had, didn't have very good margins. And uh, it was seasonal. That was really horrible because, you know, I couldn't really run a business year round. You know, when I did sell on credit, um, it took so long to get the money in, but I had to pay for the product up front. Cash flow wise, that was a bitch. So I had all the worst elements of every business and I really did contemplate giving up. And if it wasn't for the passion of all of these retailers on the, on the answering machines, they were offering to drive from all over Southern California to my little warehouse, which was like in my bedroom, to pick up boots, you know. And when I thought, okay, if, if they're that passionate about it, I've got to do something about this to make it work. And that's when I started to look for an investor to help me uh, have the capital to live through the first, you know, through the next summer so that I could really put the business into a proper shape. So it took a long time. It took four, four years to evolve into where I was able to get a small salary. During that time, during those, those lean years, if you can imagine the, like the toughest day or you know, the hardest day, can you walk me through what that was like? You know, when my buddy Doug got another job after that first 28 pairs, I, I had to do all the selling then. And I was so embarrassed walking into surf shops with sheepskin boots. And I can remember the first trade show that we put up. It was called Action Sports Retailer Trade Show in Long Beach. And I remember wheeling my little box of sheepskin boots into this you know, stadium, which is full of sun and sand and palm trees and bikinis and board shorts. And I, I was so embarrassed. It was so terrifying for me as a salesperson. And the fear of rejection was really, really very, very strong with me. And I think those early days of having to get on the road uh, where, you know, I would procrastinate, you know, I'd say, okay, Monday I'm going out and by maybe Thursday I'd finally have the courage to do it. When I eventually started to look at the manager or the owner of the shop, I'd start trying to find something in common with them first, like, you know, lifestyle things. And then after a while, I could then bring the product up and start talking about that. But once I decided that they're not rejecting me personally, they're, they're just not sure about the product. When I was able to make that distinction, then my terror of going on the road sort of subsided. And I started enjoying going, even if I didn't buy, I enjoyed going out, chatting with them and talking about surf or golf or family or anything. And then you know, knowing that one day I'm going to come back, they're going to buy. So that, that, those early days of selling were the most terrifying part of the business for me. I remember you also telling me you were able to see that you were really helping the surf shops. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? It was a few years down the road when I made this realization. I was in a surf shop in Encinitas, California, and I sold him $80,000 worth of Ugg boots last season. And he's got almost nothing left. And I knew he marked it up 100%. So that, that's normal in the retail trade. And so I thought, shit, he just made 80000 bucks. 
it's a tiny little store. I said, the rent's got to be 2000 a month. So, you know, this, they say 24000 What did he do with the other, you know, 56000 And that probably paid for half of his, most of his employees for the year. And then I thought, well, everything else that he sells in this store goes straight in his pocket. And I realized, my God, my Uggs have covered his overheads and he's just raking in the money on the rest of the product. And I felt then like a benefactor instead of feeling like I was taking, I had this realization that I was giving and that realization then translated into every other customer I had. I, I would walk into the next store going, okay, I wonder how much these guys made last. And, and I'd look it up on the computer and, and oh my God, I sold him $28,000 worth. He made a lot of money off me. And when I realized that my presence was was actually helping them and not taking away from them, which I'd always thought sales was taking, taking, taking. Now I realize I'm giving, 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 and, and it made it so much easier for me to have a better relationship with every store owner from then on. Here you are, you're, you're getting into your sales groove, you're feeling a little better about how you're framing it, you're, you're seeing some success, you're at $240,000, what, what happened next? I was never prepared for what happens when you grow a small company and you're not capitalized. I used to think that, you know, well, it's the end of the season. I've sold out a product. We doubled last year's sales, but I've got no money. What's going wrong? And I was always at the whim of having to, you know, get new investors in all the time. Uh, And, you know, that first 20,000 we raised, I thought that's more money than we would ever need. But it got to where I was, you know, doing about a million in sales and, it looked like the next season was going to be even better. So I'm looking at $2 million in sales. I had no capital. And so I had to keep relying on new investors. And, and because I kept growing at this rate, I, I was outgrowing my investors. You know, the first one came in with 20000 Well, he didn't have any more money to, to ramp the business up to, you know, sixty or 80000 And so I got to, had to buy him out, get a new investor in, and then he couldn't last the distance. So I had to be continually trying to find bigger investors. I got to the stage where I got these three new investors in and we were going to own the business 25% each. It was a great deal, I thought at the time. And I was bringing in three new partners and there were two provisos. One, I I was to become the sales rep uh, outside instead of running the business internally, they were going to run the business. The other thing was I had to finish this little trademark lawsuit I had going on before I got my 25% of the stock issued. And I, uh, you know, helped move the warehouse up to Anaheim where they were. We uh, set everything up. I went on the road from Anaheim and I went into a little surf shop in Huntington Beach that very first day. As soon as I walked in the door, he goes, hey, Brian, I heard you sold the business. And I went, what? He said, yeah, I called an order in. They said, you don't own the company anymore. And I said, you're kidding me. And I went to the Shell Gas station next door after that visit and called up the Anaheim guys. I said, Neil, Neil, what are you telling people? He says, what do you mean? I said, well, you're telling me I don't own the company. He said, well, you don't. You know, you don't get your stock issued. And I I went, oh, my God. And I I hung up and I drove straight back to San Diego and looked at the contract because in my mind I was bringing in three new partners. But the way the contract read is that, it just wasn't an owner until I got my stock issued. I had no control over when this lawsuit was going to finish. So I just went into this huge depression and 
you know, I just moped about for two or three days. I, had, I just couldn't even put a rational thought together because it was all my dreams of, of the future of being this CEO of this huge international company one day was just like gone out the window. So it was about the third night I was watching TV on the floor of the living room with my wife. She was on the couch and I, the, the show finished and I reached up and clicked the TV off and I rolled over onto my stomach and started crawling to the bedroom on, on my hands and knees. And, and Laura, who's really quiet, you know, usually she just looked at me and said, you get up now and walk to bed like a man. And as soon as she did that, it scared the heck out of me. And, but as I started to stand up, it was like coming out of a fog. And I realized, oh, my God, there's so much more to life than this crappy little business, you know. And, and I slept like a baby that night. And next day, I, you know, had to figure out, okay, well, what am I going to do with myself? I've just lost the UG company. What, what can I do? And I, I was thinking, will I be a business broker? Well, maybe. Real estate? No. Accountant? Never. And then I got these goosebumps again and I thought, you know, man, I, I've come to love sales. And I thought, well, what did I sell? The thought came to me, well, shit, UG boots, you know. I love UG boots. So I went up to Anaheim and I, I told the guys, look, I may never own the company, but I'm going to try and get a pair of Ugg boots on every single person in America. And so I just went on the road and became a full-time sales rep. I got back up to the warehouse in Anaheim after the first month and Neil handed me a check and I you know, opened up the envelope. And he, it's 5,000 bucks. And that's the first money I'd ever really pulled out of the company. And I went on the road for another month and I got back and here's the check for 10000 and the following month another 10000 And I started thinking, oh, my God, you know, that I'm out there having a ball with all my retailers and I'm, I'm really not working hard I, and I'm getting all this money. I'm not doing any of the, you know, the office work, the importing, the warehousing or shipping. I'm not doing anything except having fun. And that my book has got a lot of philosophy in it and what, one of the greatest points in that book is the fact that nearly always your most disappointing disappointments will become your greatest blessings. And this was a perfect example of, you know, me, me thinking that it was the end of the world when I lost the company. And now here I was a month later or two months later making all this money and it was really one of the greatest blessings. And that, that went on for several years. You know, my, my commissions went up to, you know, 50,000, 70,000, 100,000 after the next couple of years. I was getting paid to do something I absolutely loved. And so that was one of those classic greatest blessings that came out of such a huge disappointment. You know, what is this love for this philosophy, for this worldview of, of framing up some of these giant challenges in, in philosophy? Where does that come from? Yeah, well, I found my philosophy from lots of different religious and you know, philosophical books. And the, my favorite one of all time is... The quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog is to live every day happily as a tadpole. And I know this sounds really trite, but it is so, so true. You can trace it back to pretty much anyone who's ever started a business. You know, you, you, you don't think it's moving. You don't think it's growing. But if you just keep trying to be better and better and better at what you do every single day, eventually you look back and think, oh, my God, I've, I'm a frog. I'm not a tadpole anymore. And, it's, and the change is so slow, you don't see it happening. 
Brian, you mentioned Goosebumps several times. What role does Goosebumps play in your both your personal and your business life? I really believe that there's a spark of God in every one of us. And whether it's God or spirit, or I don't care what you call it, there is some supernatural thing in us that, that I believe has a mission for what it wants us to do in our lives. And every time we make a decision that's in alignment with that, vision that it has, it sends us a message. And the only way it can get to us is through this electrochemical system that we call a body, you know, and it, it sends a little charge of electricity through us saying, hey, yeah, you're on the right track. So Brian Smith, this physical body, Brian Smith is this spark of spirit or truth that's inside me. I challenge everybody from the stage, you know, if you ever get goosebumps, just stop for a second and just try and think, what did I just think or say or do or see that was in alignment with my big picture. And I bet you, you'll be surprised that nearly every time that you'll find it. Have you had any other experiences with goosebumps that have uh, drastically uh, altered the course of your life other than the ones that you've shared with them? Like when I was in Australia listening to that Pink Floyd thing, I got the goosebumps then. Then when I was meditating, thinking, what will I do? Go to America. I got the goosebumps then. And so each time I, I was able to take those goosebumps and realize, hey, the life I'm living isn't really where I want to be right now. And not knowing what it was I had to do, at least it took, I took action. And that's the, the most critical thing for any entrepreneur is just take action because, you know, and you don't even have to know where you're going. In fact, I say in my book that one of the most in, essential ingredients for an entrepreneur is some level of ignorance. Because if you knew where you were going, you wouldn't go there. If you knew what was ahead of you as an entrepreneur or starting out something, you wouldn't go there. But if you just have the ignorance and the fantastic drive, you overcome all of the obstacles. Once you start out on a path, the universe will conspire to work with you. You must have heard that statement. It's, it's thousands of years old. The universe is out there. It's perfect. Everything you could possibly want is already out there. But it's only when you start on a path or a direction that you start to see the things that are relevant to where you're going. But if you're sitting in front of the TV every day and not showing any interest in a new venture, you're never going to see it. You must be in motion. So you've lost control of the company, you're finding new joy and you've, you've been able to, to reframe your outlook to say, you know what, I, I love what I'm doing. I'm making some money. I'm, I'm selling these Uggs. And even though I may not have ownership in the company now, it's my idea. And I'm, I'm sharing that with the world. Like, how did you get the company back? And then what happened? Time has a way of changing things, both for good and for bad. You know, after three or four years, Neil, you know, the, one of the new owners had bought the other two guys out because I'd been working with Neil so well and he realized that all my customers absolutely loved me and I was coming in at Christmas to help in the warehouse with the shipping and the handling, even though it wasn't my job. You know, he realized I was a real team player and he said, hey, Brian, look, next week, let's come in and we'll issue your 25% of the stock and we got new company cars for, you know, for each other. And uh, we got life insurance policies taken out on each other. I was in cloud nine because I, I, I've just I've been working all these years on faith that I would get my stock back sometime. 
And anyway, I was getting ready to next Wednesday, where as the weekend before, you know, my wife called me up and she was crying and she called Brian. You know, Neil's just died. And oh, my world just crashed again because, you know, here I was just getting ready to be in charge of my life again. And now he's gone. And I knew his wife had never stepped foot inside the business. So she didn't have a clue what was going on. So I called her up and I said, look, I'll be up tomorrow and I'll try and, you know, help you figure out what's, you know, where the company's at. And that began this humongously long period of my life. That was the longest six months because, you know, the company was not in really good shape. Uh, I found out pretty quickly. This is when my accounting skills really started to kick in because I was a, like a forensic auditor. After a few months, I realized that, that, you know, God, I don't think we're going to be able to pull it through because there's no serious cash flow coming until next October, November. And I needed my supplier to come through with production without me paying up front. And I knew that was going to be a really tough call. And so I spent this, this six months desperately trying to raise money to send to the factory to get production made. The factory manager was, or the owner was really non-committal. He wasn't giving me any good vibes that he was going to stick with me or anything. And so I was trying to run the company on one side, making sure nobody outside knew that we were in trouble. But on the other side of it, I was working, you know, 15 hours a day, just trying to make sense of where we were and trying to keep it all together. And I can remember we'd, we'd just brought on two new colors, black and charcoal, for the season and the, and the sales reps across the country were just kicking butt and when the orders were coming through, you know, just so strongly, I, I'd bundle up, you know, 5,000 pairs at the end of a week and I'd send them down to George in Australia and say, hey, George, have you started production? And I, I guess really wishy-washy, you know, excuse back that now I haven't started, how am I going to pay for the product and all this? And this went on all the way through July, August, September and in in August, I'd, I'd gone down to Australia to find a, a you know tannery that might just sit in bankrolling me because it was in their interest to sell skins. And although we got really close with this guy, Gordon Jackson, who owned a huge tannery in Melbourne, we got really close after four or five days. Uh, we couldn't put a deal together because he wanted cash up front as well. And uh, so I came back to California the first person I spoke to was my sales rep and she said, Brian, there's another company out here selling sheepskin boots and they claim they're going to be putting UG out of business. And I go, oh my God, who are they? And I looked up and it was a company called Thunderwear. You know, they're in the windsurfing business, selling booties and gloves and wetsuits and stuff. Anyway, it got to be September when the big trade show kicking off the season was, was happening in Long Beach and my wife. I had a choice, you know, do we tell everybody that we're out of business because we can't get product? We keep faking it. And I, and I wasn't ready to give up yet. You know, I, I knew I was in desperate times, but I wasn't ready to give up. So we put the trade show booth up and and then I thought, I wonder where those Thunderwear people are. You know, I'm going to check out their, their boots. I found them, you know, in the trade directory way back in the corner and I over there and I stopped a couple of births short and just went, oh, shit. You know, there was all my product from, from my factory, including back and the charcoal, which George claimed he couldn't get, you know, and all these boots have a different label on them and it, and it was called thugs. 
And I thought, I just, you know, part of the Thunderwear Thugs. I thought, oh, God, how appropriate is that name? And that's, that's when I knew I was out of business because if George wasn't going to supply me anymore um, and he'd found somebody else to distribute through, I knew I was dead. I called my wife and I said, you know, we, we, on Monday we'll start calling all our best retailers and tell them to go buy thugs because it's our, our, our boots anyway from our factory. After the show finished, we packed up. I went back home and I called up Gordon, the last call I made before bed, and I said, Gordon, thanks so much for trying, but, you know, George has done an end run around me and I've, he's found a new supplier or a new distributor and uh, we're going to cut the company down on Monday. And, yeah, he was sad and we hung up. And then we, we went to bed and about 2 o'clock in the morning, the first things, he says, Brian, it's Gordon. Screw George. I'll get you all the boots you need. And just like that, we were back in business again. You know, no handshake, no nothing in writing. And after a couple of weeks, we started getting 2,000 pairs in and then 5,000 pairs every Every Thursday night, we'd get, you know, the 5,000 pairs in. And Friday morning, we'd start shipping off to all of our best customers across the country and, you know, half of it for Southern California. And, and our retailers got so, you know, jumpy that they would drive to our warehouse and pick up boots Friday morning. And by Saturday lunchtime, we were absolutely empty. Between Christmas and New Year, the insurance policy, we, we you know, when, when Neil and I had taken out policies, the policy paid out and it was just enough money for me to buy all of the assets back from his widow and own of the business again. And she was stoked because, you know, had the way she would have had nothing. But by sticking around for the year, she got great value out of the business. And then as I understand it, uh, you had some more of the universe conspiring to get together. Uh, you had an appearance uh, where Oprah showcased your boots as her one of her favorite things, and that had a rocket ship effect for the brand. And I think people what people forget is that Uggs today are everywhere, but you know it, it took a long time before it became so ubiquitous, and it got to such a point and, and such a success where you were able to finally have an exit and and pass the brand on to someone who could take it to the next level. If you walked up to the 20-year-old Brian right now and told him that this was all going to happen, what do you think he'd say? Well, at 21, I wouldn't have believed it. I always had this inkling that I wanted to leave the planet better than I found it. And that, that sounds like a really big statement. But even, in, you know, as a 16, 17, 18 years old, I think when I discovered that feeling, that so I wanted to do something significant and even though universe terms, it doesn't look that big to have started a billion-dollar brand. But when I look around and, like, I was just in Germany and Switzerland last week in the summertime and I saw people wearing Ugg boots, you know. Another trip I was back in, in northern Europe uh, in the middle of winter, you know, Finland, Norway, Sweden, everybody was wearing Ugg boots. And when I realized how many people that I've touched that have experienced that, that really incredible thing of sheepskin on your bare feet, and, and it's in the millions and millions and millions of people, I, I realized that, you know, maybe I have started to leave the world a little bit better off than when I found it, but I'm certainly not finished yet. And uh, I wonder if there's something bigger coming. I'm sure there is. And I'm going to ask you about that in just a second. But like, how does that feel when you see people walking around in Ugg boots after all these years? 
Oh, it's awesome. I, I never get tired of it. You know, even though I sold the company 100% in the late 90s, uh, it's still my baby. Remember that you can't give birth to adults theme? It was like, got my baby to maturity. Like, you know, she, she graduated from college and, and now I, I walked her down the aisle and I handed her off to Decker's Corporation, which was a public company in the shoe industry. And that was like the, when UGG started to blossom. And, and right at that time, I just made the contact with Oprah through um, this girl, Trudy Styler, who was Sting's wife. And, and he convinced me to send a pair of boots to Oprah. And that started this love affair where we got on Oprah's best picks for Christmas and Oprah's favorite things. And, and that's what really took UGG from a local product into the nationals awareness and then into the international stage and that's where we started to hit the billions and I think we've been in the billions for the last six years so if you had have asked me when I started out that was going to happen um would never have believed it I can remember looking back it was uh in the late or mid mid 90s 95 I think and I was standing on the terrace at this beautiful golf club in New Jersey and I'd been invited to play golf by the president of Kinney Shoes, which was the biggest shoe retailer in the world at that time. And I can remember standing out there thinking, Brian, what how the hell did you ever get here? You know, from an accountant in Perth, you know, 20 years previously, how the hell did I ever get here? And God damn it, here I was with a company worth, you know, millions and millions of dollars sitting here in the absolute pinnacle of where I could be in the footwear industry. So enjoy being a tadpole because you're going to become the frog as long as you don't give up. Just to assure you that everything Brian Smith touched did not turn to gold, the company he was involved with prior to UGG that was supposed to be his billion-dollar idea? Grass skis. Yep, that's right. Skiing on grass. Clearly not the next big thing. This is the big idea that motivated him to move his entire life from Australia to California, and I'm sure it's going to come around any day now. We're still waiting, but without grass skis, we wouldn't have Ugg boots. So even at over 70 years of age, Brian is still surfing in Southern California and he travels the world as a sought after keynote speaker. We'll make sure to link to his website in the show notes. Brian's best-selling book, Birth of a Brand, has been updated and will be re-released in late October, 2018. We'll also provide a link to that in the show notes. Well, that's it for today's backstory. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. Baby got backstory. You'll also find free story downloads and resources to help you integrate the power of story into your business. 